0: Hello, and welcome to Workall's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of Workul's Happiness Podcast, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Geoffrey Williams. Now, Geoffrey, as his day job is the global head of diversity, equity and inclusion for Dr. Martins, but he's also the founder of a not-for-profit organization called Rocking Your Teams, which we'll hear all about. But before that, Geoffrey had ambitions to go into the entertainment industry, which he did. So we're going to discover from him all about the entertainment industry, all about setting up a charity, and also now having a huge job in a huge company. Geoffrey, welcome to the Work All Happiness podcast. Thank
1: you so much for having me, Mark.
0: What I'd like to do, Geoffrey, is start off with your early years. Now, tell me, when you were young, did you know what you wanted to do when you left school?
1: Uh, no, I just wanted to leave school. That was, that was, that was the, the, the main and focus I think um, there was a lot of things I wanted to do so at one point I wanted to be a pharmacist because one of my dad's friends was a pharmacist and he, he sounded like he always had a lot of fun like basically coming up with the ideas that they were creating and uh, the the ways that they were working so he kind of always had new ideas and it was always just really fascinating then I wanted to be a writer at one point um I love books I have an extensive bookshelf with Lots of books I haven't read, but lots of books I have. That's how I consume. Even from a young age, I've always kind of enjoyed reading. So I thought I wanted to work in that space at one point. And then um, I guess the music part, I, I was good at singing. I was good at music as a young person. And um, I think the funny fact, or I think the one of the f- interesting things I will share is I was watching Blue Peter <laughs> many years ago, and they had just opened the Brits Performing Art School. And... They had the first round of kids that were going there performing on on Blue Peter and talking about the school and saying they was opening and you know they were looking for talented people to go there and I was like, I'm going there. That's where I'm going. I'm gonna work in the entertainment industry. And I think that's when I made that decision, watching Blue Peter. I must have been about maybe twelve or thirteen at the time. Um so just before doing my GCSEs. And I was like, yeah that's where I wanna go. Um my parents weren't too impressed with that decision, but um I was kind of like, well, if I make it in, that's where I'm going, that's what I'm going to do. So I think that's where the decision of the entertainment piece
0: came. And, and Geoffrey, how did you get into your singing when you were at school? It just, actually,
1: I didn't actually sing at school. I wasn't known for being a singer at school. What happened, again, my dad and his crazy network of friends, uh, one of his friends was a session musician, um, and he would play, I think, the drums and he sang. And he did background vocals for like Shaka Khan and Whitney Houston when they came to the UK. And he kind of introduced me to lots of different voices. So from Pavarotti to Donny Hathaway to Shaka Khan to Stevie Wonder, Gregory Isaacs, just lots of different forms of music. And alongside my dad as well, who loves music. And it was just kind of one of these things where I'd just be singing in the background. And then one time he was like, actually you've got a really good voice, you should maybe consider doing that for a living. And in honesty, I never wanted to be a singer. Um, I love singing, but I kind of always wanted to be more in charge. <laughs> I didn't want to be like the person on the stage. Um, I wanted to make the music and you know, think of how it was all put together. Um, but I enjoyed the performances when I did do them and it just kind of became a thing that I was doing. And then when I saw the Brits and it was kind of, you know yes, the performing arts part, but it's also the business side just felt like such a logical step to learn both um so yeah that's how I kind of fell into that
0: and, and was your family musical I mean you said that your dad knew somebody but were your mum and dad musical my mum no my dad yes
1: <laughs> so my dad um you know kind of was a singer as well for a little bit um wasn't how he made his living but because he, he knew all these different people that were industry, he'd go and do things he cut one record um that I think they released in Germany, if I remember the story correctly. Um, but he wasn't, again, he, he wasn't really trying to be a singer, which is something that he enjoyed doing, and opportunities came about when he was able to do that particular thing. Um, and then he did it, and then that was it for him, I think.
0: And tell us about Brit School. Was it hard to get into?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> um, it was a... It was like a round of auditions. You had to have conversation with the, you know, the, the department you were going into. Go to talk about, you know, what your ambition was, what you wanted to achieve. And at, and at the time, it was such a, you know, second round of kids to go there. It was a very small school. Um, and I think in our year, it might have been like four hundred or five hundred kids, if that. Um, and you know, everyone had clear idea of who they wanted to be, where they wanted to go. So it was very competitive. Um, Everyone was extremely driven, um, but then in the same breath, very collaborative. So you just kind of got up to so many different bits and pieces. It was, you know, one of the, I guess, defining moments of my, you know, young adult life because I kind of left home um, and was quite independent at that period, um, and it was just awesome. So yeah, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot from it, and then, you know, still have some of my really good friends.
0: And and what did you study when you were there? So I did
1: um, actually journalism. So again, as I said, I wanted to be a writer. So I uh, decided that I was gonna do journalism journalism with a minor in uh, performing arts. So I did like a lot of the kind of voice and dance lessons, but I wasn't, I'm not a good actor. I'm not a very good dancer either, but I need need to have at least one or two (laughs) uh, technically good to be a performer. That's what I decided I wanted to do.
0: And then you also studied the business side of entertainment.
1: At the, while at the Brits, I was in the part of a music business class, and then when I uh, left the Brits and I went to university, I did a um, degree focused on the entertainment industry, so the business of entertainment. Literally everything, actually, so broader than just music, so how do you make a film, uh, how do you do a summer festival, To uh, you know, how do you make record an album, promote it literally every facet of that that was also again again i was a guinea pig i think i was the second round of kids to do that degree as well
0: well at this point it seems pretty clear that you know what you want to do you've you're (laughs) um you're clearly pretty talented you're a good singer you've got a a broad stretch now of performing skills you've learned about the business what did you decide to do when you left university what happened
1: so um i think going back to the point i made earlier on that you know this ensues about you know who you know what you know I, it was actually really quite hard. I, I came out and I was auditioning for different things. Uh, out of university, I was auditioning for different projects. And even though I didn't want to do that, that was kind of, I guess, where I had the most history and the most experience. And then, fortunately, we had a bereavement in my family, and I was singing at the individual's funeral, my uncle's funeral. And one of his friends <laughs> came to me afterwards and said, oh, do you want to be a singer? My, uh, my son runs a recording studio. And I was like, no, I don't. I actually want to work behind the scenes and he was like oh well the guy who manages his career you should go and speak to him so I went to this studio based in Shepherds Bush and I spoke uh, firstly to my uncle's friend's son and he was like oh I'm looking for an engineer and I was like I have literally no interest in being an engineer so I'll pass on that but um, I went to the Brits so I'm sure I'll know someone else so I connected him to some other people that I knew he was like oh the guy who who manages my career who sort of runs the building." Um, you should go and talk to him so I went downstairs and I spoke to this other guy who ran um, this boutique management company called Zoza Management and um, they kind of been working with Janelia and uh, who else at the time Mystique and various other kind of like R&B pop uh, artists in the UK at the time and he was looking for an assistant to help him manage his books and his artists and we had a conversation where again I probably overly frank so he played me someone's demo and I was like it's not very good um I don't get it I don't I I think the statement I said was I don't understand the commercial value you're trying to sell here and and he was like what I was like well you said you played me four different songs that are meant to be on one album none of them are cohesive they all sound very different to each other and so then if I'm going to buy this product as a fan I just don't get it Oh, wow. And that's how I got my job. (laughs) So I ended up working for this uh, management company. And uh, initially I was kind of just managing his books and keeping his diary and stuff. And then effectively, I ended up being the road manager for a couple of his clients, um, namely an artist called Terry Walker, who was nominated for the Mercury Music Prize and assigned to Mercury Def Jam. and, and a few other individuals from a publishing standpoint. And yeah, I just kind of had my time, you know, being behind the scenes, having fun, but really enjoying you know, creating projects and various other
0: bits. And what's it like to work in that industry, in the entertainment industry, to be a, a road manager and be around all these sort of well-known artists?
1: Well, only, the funny thing is, what you realise is they're huge one and then two it's it's a lot of fun because you're like effectively you know I think the 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 fun the funniest and most fun trip that me and Terry took was we went to Capri and basically did a gig with Debbie Harry and so it was just kind of like you know you'd have you'd, you'd have a lot of really random moments but then also I think you know the artist that I was looking after me and her had a really great bond and you know we were still in Contact constantly now, and so just kind of making those friendships for life. But also, I guess learning for me, being so young, I kind of learned how to negotiate and how to to navigate to speak up for myself. Because a lot of the time, I would be the youngest person in the room. Um, you know, so I've got a, a band that's touring with us, and you know, they're all individuals in their thirties at the time. I was in my twenties. They've been doing this for years, but I was the one who had to go and ask the promoter for the money and. You know, a couple of times the promoter would be like, oh, yeah, we, we were told that we would give you the money by a bank, bank transfer. And i had to be like, nope, I've been told that you need to pay up now. Otherwise, we didn't go on stage. So kind of finding, having all those moments and being 22 at the time, you know, you really have to kind of, I guess, elevate yourself. And I think for me, you know, I'm kind of laid back type of person. So again, it was stepping out of my comfort zone having to
0: do those types of things. And, and, and what, for you, was the worst moment of doing that? What was the toughest thing, apart from asking a promoter for cash up front? <laughs>
1: I think it's like, you know, having, having those conversations. I think it's also, um, for me, it was kind of control managing all these individuals that were way older than me. So, you know, one of our band members liked to be late. He would just turn up when he turned up, and then I'd say to him, well, you know, you're meant to be here at this time. And but like, yeah, but I got here when I got here. You no, know, sorry. And it was kind of like a, a level of, I guess, disrespect. Like, you know, you're, you're a little kid. You know, when when the real guy's here, I'll be on time. But as it's you, I'll do what I want to do. And I remember leaving him in Birmingham because he wasn't on time. I was just like, you know what I'm Everyone's like, you can't leave him. I'm like, look, I can't every time be waiting for him. We've got we've got to do a TV show. We've got to do a radio show. You guys have got to warm up. We haven't got time for him. So I left a note at the front desk of the hotel. And said, "Do you know how to get to our next destination? I suggest you be there before sound check. See you later." And then he was on. He got there <laughs> on his own dime. He was, he was annoyed about that because he wanted to charge me for that. And I was like, "No, because you knew what time the bus was leaving." Um, and yeah, so I think you know those kind of moments. Um, and I think also it's that kind of that moment of feeling like you're living your dream. But Then you have to you know, balance that in the sense of people respecting you and people paying you for your time, all those bits and pieces as well.
0: So, so tell us what happened then. So, you're doing this job, you've developed in it, you're road managing. What happens next in your career?
1: Um, what happens next is, uh, so the artist, the, the management company that I was working for folded, unfortunately, the guy who was running it. Um, basically, I think he went bankrupt, to <laughs> I'm being honest, but it just all kind of came to crashing ends but I did stay with I basically stayed with three of these clients so I started my own little uh, management company at the time um did that for I guess another two and a half years and then just before 2006 I started to diversify um because I basically wasn't having as much fun Because I have, you know, you you have a love for something. And then to be on the business side, you start to critique everything in a very different way. So I started to realize I was doing that. And I was like, I'm not sure what I want to do next. So maybe now's the time to start thinking about it. I'm still young enough. not over the hill yet, type thought. And um, I was talking to a friend. And and, and I think when you listen to my story, there's a lot. I was talking to someone. And then this happened. So I was talking to a friend and they said, oh, you know, I work for this recruitment agency. You know, they're looking for someone part-time so you can still do what they're doing on the side but work for us as well. Um, you're good people and you know, come in and do that. So I went to work for a nursing agency that sent um, people into care homes and to hospitals to support workers and stuff. Not the most fun, exciting thing. Um, it was interesting because I got to learn about manpower and how organizations uh, I guess, look at who they hire, and who they put into different roles and how things got put forward. And, you know, I spent about probably a year doing that. And then I decided that I really wanted to step away from music completely. Um, had a bit of a nightmare. With, again, one of my clients uh, invested a bit of funds in him. and He decided that he wanted to go with a different agency. So I lost him. And then my other client was having a moment of introspection. So she was taking a break. I was like you know it's like all this kind of working for myself trying to figure things out not enjoying it as much so maybe i should go and do this recruitment thing full-time and landed at a uh rail company of all things um doing recruitment for them um in-house uh that's probably the worst decision i've ever made career-wise um did not enjoy it at all um again lasted 13 months there and
0: and why do you think you didn't enjoy that, Geoffrey?
1: Um, well, I, I kind of had been my own boss up until that point. So, you know, wake up and show up when I want to you know, do what I need to do, get it done, but do it in the timeframes I want to do it. Um, yeah, that was the first job, first full-time job that I'd had, that I needed to be there at nine o'clock or, you know, 9, 8.45. And that you know, you clocked off at 5.30 and, there was no real kind of like I'm being on social life, or I didn't. Say. I didn't personally socialize with the people I was working with, um, so which is a big, big, big change. And I didn't get on with my line manager. i being on next door. She didn't get on with me. Yeah, it just didn't work out. And I and I think you know now looking back, it was a good moment because I got to learn about what I did want, what I didn't want. Um, but at the time, it was it was disheartening to think that you could you know, get a job and be treated so badly.
0: And and is the lesson from that if you um if you don't have a good relationship with your line manager, it's very difficult to do a job effectively. Yes, definitely. I think, yeah,
1: definitely. If you don't have a good relationship with the line manager, if they're not supporting you or listening to your your wants and needs, yeah, it's definitely an issue. Because I think that was the barrier. It wasn't the job. It wasn't my capability to do the job. It was the fact that me and her just didn't work. um, And I just felt isolated. So then it was like, and I actually left. I didn't have another job to go to. I just was like, I woke up New Year's Day, of 2008. And was like, yep, yeah, that's it. I'm handing in my notice. And then went back the next, uh, you know, January 2nd. and was like, as of March, whatever, I will no longer be working. There. And I was like, what are you doing? I'm like, I have no idea. I just need to leave here for my mental health and my sanity. Um, and that was a, a risk as well, because I literally had no idea how I was going to pay my mortgage or any of the things I had going on at the time. I was like, I've just had enough. It's like this life is worth living and no one's worth, no one's, I'm not going to let anyone make me feel so small just to have a paycheck. Um. So yeah, so I left that job and didn't know what I was next and had a bit of a trip. So I went traveling for a little bit, uh, spent a couple of weeks in Corsica with a friend of mine who'd also left his job um and we were reading all really these self-help books and i came back from that trip and um, i went and saw an agency recruitment an agency and i kind of it's really sad because i can't remember what agency it was and i keep meaning to want to shout them out because the lady who i spoke to just did such a fantastic job she you know really broke down my career today all the things i've done all the skills and transferable skills that i had um and kind of helped me you know see that and me in front of a couple of different organisations, one of which was Thompson Waiters, and I was lucky enough to get the job at Thompson Waiters, and um, I started there literally two weeks before the financial crash in 2008, um, working in their learning and development team, basically planning all of their global learning and development events, so kind of taking my events experience by applying it to the learning and development space, Um, and yeah, that was kind of like a moment. being able to do something
0: really fun um,
1: in a massive organisation.
0: And so when you got that job, because that is so far from where you started. I mean, that is so far from where you started. Big organisation, moved into learning and development, HR function. When you arrived there and you started to do that job, did you feel early on that it was right? It was the right kind of job for you? Do you know something? Yes.
1: The fun, the, I would say my first few weeks was really funny because um our, I was in a Pacific division of the business which was called the IP and Science uh, Division and where I, that's where I started and I remember the global head of HR for that business unit was in town and then the global head of talent who we reported into was also in town from that business unit and I was able to spend some time with both of them and they both kind of asked me, okay so in two years time what job will you be doing here and i was like i just got here this is like day two how am i going to know what job i'm going to be doing? but the fact that they asked me that question so early on just meant that you know i had space to grow and that there was i guess a vision that i was going to stay here <laughs> you know that even though it was day day two that they, they wanted to keep me um and it was just you know just kind of feeling like ooh. Actually, when you look at this business, there's five business units. Each business unit has, you know, the same kind of verticals. There's a corporate center that you could sit in. There's just lots of space. There's so much stuff, and so it just, it just felt right. It felt like, you know, they were investing in their people. They cared about what people wanted to do, and they were asking all of these kind of, you know, upfront questions about your own needs and wants. So yeah.
0: And so tell us what happened then. So this, you joined them just before the financial crisis. Yeah. So what happened next in your story? So what happened
1: next in my story um, was like all big conglomerate global organizations, there was an internal uh, change and the department that I was in within the IP and science business got moved into the corporate center. Unfortunately, um, some of the individuals I was working with left the business at that point. Um, I then moved into a slightly different role. So I was then responsible for all of our learning centers which was basically a fancy word for a library, um, which is quite funny, actually, because when I was at school, you know, you like, used to do those tests where you had to tick the box of like your, I guess, your identity, your experiences, and like put it into a machine and spell what you're going to do. And I actually got a pop star or librarian. So I kind of did both. But I ended up being a library for Atop's workers, doing this uh, library, looking after the learning centers, and then also uh, working on some of the talent and OD, organizational design projects, which again, was just another opportunity for me to kind of look at what I did in my degree and then applying that to a you know, non-musical uh, film entertainment based work. Um, and yeah, then I got there. And then um, there was another reshuffle <laughs> and I ended up back in the old business unit that I'd started in, um, basically working again on talent and looking out there. Kind of like learning programs. I was responsible for all of the corporate center activities that happened. I had to make sure that we had the budget, and one understood where we were, what they were doing and how much investment we were putting into it. Who actually went onto the programs? Looking at the, I guess, the makeup of those individuals, and and then also looking at some of our MBA programs and the MBA rotation program that we had in the business as well. And I remember how I ended up in DNI because that's the next part of the story. Was I was having a conversation with my then boss, about two things actually. So one was around, I'd done a leadership program and on the leadership program, they kind of said, oh, you need to ask for what you want. So I kind of went and I saw my boss and I said, do you know something? I have kind of I feel like I've been coasting. Like I came in feeling like, oh, I don't belong here. and I don't know enough because I came from a completely different background. Um, but now I feel like I'm being undervalued or I'm not getting what I need for my career. And and also, I'm kind of looking after all of these lovely uh, MBA people you guys are kind of put on a pedestal and investing a lot of money in. But how does that play out for everybody else? And he kind of said, Oh, you know something? that's a good question. Uh, we need to think about the diversity and inclusion of our, our organization. Would you want to write a DI strategy or would you want to be responsible for our DNI strategy? And I remember saying to at the time, Nope, I do not want to be responsible for anybody's DI strategy as a black man, I find that offensive that he me to me to write this thing. Um, and he was like, but that's not what I meant. And I was like, I don't care. I don't want to do it. So we had this, uh, and I know he dies out on this, I'm sure, sure, till this day, uh, but we had this back and forth conversation about what diversity and inclusion actually meant, uh, what
0: a strategy
1: should encompass, um, the I guess the principles of how it aligns to an organisation and I actually learned some stuff again, but I didn't know. And I saw that possibly there was an opportunity to do something because not only was your GNI strategy about the makeup of your people, it was also about the experience that people might have in your organization. And that is for everybody, not just those that uh, are, you know, women or ethnic minorities or part of the LGBT community, but every single individual that comes in your front door, their experience is tied into this DNI narrative you know, how do people view your brand in the external market? Uh, where are the opportunities to innovate and come up with new ideas? How do you expand your customer base? So something, I was like, "Oh wow, this is amazing! This is like completely different than what I thought it was." I thought I was just going to be counting minorities and women and saying, "Oh, there's none here. We need to put people in." Um, and at the time, they didn't have a global DNI team. Um, but basically, six months later, the business decided that they were going to create a global DNI team and I was fortunate enough to land in a role in that team, uh, being the head of the mayor. Um, so Europe, Middle East and Africa. So I ended up doing that job for a while. And then I just slowly moved around in the DNI team until I became the global head of DNI uh, at Thompson Waiters, um, you know, building out their employee networks, uh, defining strategies to track our performance um, in that space. And really just kind of, I guess, getting everyone to See DNI as a business driver and not just a, a nice to have or a social justice activity, which I think sometimes it can become. So
0: yeah. And Jeffrey, let, let me ask you because that's an amazing journey, and now we know that you've gone on uh, to look after DNI for uh, Dr. Martin's. Um, but in your time looking at DNI, what's changed? Has anything changed?
1: A lot's changed. The conversations changed. People talk about it more. People are more aware of, uh, I guess, the different characteristics that could show up in a DNI conversation. I think people are more mindful of how they include everybody in the conversation. So I think when I started, I was talking about women mainly, and you know the experiences of working mothers, and you know whether we have the right policies. Then it shifted a bit, and I was speaking about the inclusion of LGBT uh people and their experiences and how that might need to be supported by workspaces um and then in 2015 at Tupor, we were talking about race and how that showed up in our organization in our reporting structures and the barriers that people were facing and i think you know what i personally feel like what's happening now is that people are talking about it in this holistic way which includes every identity and they're talking about it in two ways so I think we're talking about it in the terms of a business And then we're talking about it in terms of social constructs and how the world views it. And I think sometimes the two do overlap and get um, conflated, but we are having those two separate conversations as well.
0: And so what do you think is top of the agenda at the moment?
1: The agenda question always kind of throws me. I feel like, you know, for every organization and uh, space, it's what's pinnacle to them is what their data is telling them and that's what they should be following not necessarily a trend in the marketplace I think you know based on all the activity last year with Black Lives Matter and some of the things that happened over the last few weeks um you know there's a lot of conversation around racism there's a lot of conversation around uh, gender inclusion and gender safety um for especially primarily for women and also for the trans community um and I think um you know, I think those are the conversations that are happening. I don't know if they're top of the agenda, um, but I know they're the conversations that happen.
0: And tell us what took you to Dr. Martin's? Why the change?
1: So, um, again, uh, gosh, where are we now? So, 2021. So, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I got to talk. Thompson Voices wanted to move my role to the US. Unfortunately, I couldn't make that move, so I decided to, to leave. Um... I wasn't sure what I was going to do next. So I spent a little bit of time consulting and worked with a couple of organizations on their DNI strategies and also some of their brand proposition pieces around DI. Um, and in doing that, kind of felt like, oh, I'd love to work for a commercial consumer focused business because I felt like a lot of the time at Thompson Water's, I'd be like, our customers care about this. And, you know, if I being honest, the customers didn't always care. It was just like a, a nice thing to say. So I was like, no, listen. It'd be great to be somewhere where I could say our customers care about this, and I have proof of it. Um, and so, a lot of different organisations like reached out to me at the time, and I was speaking to lots of different businesses about different roles. And then, honestly, Dr. Martin's felt like there was an opportunity to start something from scratch, um, but they were actually in a really good place in the sense of you know their 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 data and their numbers and their commitment to this agenda. Um, so I kind of felt like I'm not walking in having to convince anybody that they should be doing this. I'm coming in to build something that everyone knows that we need to do it. Um, so it felt like the right fit for me in the sense of also the scope of what the role could get involved in. So that's why I ended up at Dr. Martin's.
0: And are you enjoying it?
1: Yeah, very much so. so it's, it's it's so different than kind of being in, say, an you know, organisation like something where it feels a bit more like being back in the music entertainment space. You know, everyone's really creative and. You know lots of different ideas and trying to hone things in and bring some clarity around it so now I'm having a lot of fun.
0: I know you've done the work all uh, happiness test and we'll come to that in a minute and how you score to see if you really are happy um <laughs> before that uh, tell us a little about Rocking Your Teens and the charity that you set up.
1: Yeah sure so Rocking Your Teens is a social enterprise that I set up with um myself Jenny Garrett and Sandy Paris um, six years ago now, and effectively, uh, it was quite funny, Jenny helped me remember the story the other day. So effectively, um, we all connected via Sandy, and um, I bumped into Jenny at an event, and she asked me, oh, what are you up to now? I was like, oh, I'm heading up DNI at this business. She was like, oh, I'd love to do a one-off event for young girls. Um, my daughter's 13, and I can see there's a shift in her personality, and I feel like there's something that I should be doing, and we could be doing to help uh, young women. And um, as the story goes, I said to her, what about the young men? We keep having these conversations with young women about how society should see them, and how men should treat them, but we're not actually saying that to the young men at the same time. So then doing DNI work, I always see the kind of imbalanced conversation that I then have to have to retrofit some of the things that people weren't told at a young age. So if we could speak to both audiences and get the young men to understand you know, how they should we're treating women and each other and the young women in the same space, aren't we creating a more balanced world by doing that? And she's kind of like, oh good idea. Okay, so let's let's create this thing. So we went about, we did a lot of research, spoke to a, a group of teachers to kind of find out what it was they needed. And we kind of I guess came to the realization that there was I guess three key things that we needed to put into the project. So there was a conversation around mental health and how I guess social media is impacting young people, but also I guess their own idea of who they are and how they kind of manage that. Then there was a piece around actual, what is work? What does work mean today and for the future for them? um, Because again, you know, being parents, you kind of have this conversation with your child and you say, you know, best thing for you is to be a doctor, to be a lawyer. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm whatever it is. And this is how you get there. And then you don't know about other careers. So it's kind of, giving them that space to really learn from people that are not their parents and not teachers. Um, and then the other piece is that kind of self-actualization of getting them more to be a bit more introspective and see that you know the, the one gift that we all have that you know, we don't realize is ourselves. And that is the most powerful thing that you can hold on to. So that's where you have the confidence to say, to you know something, this job isn't great for my mental health. I'm quitting. I know I don't have the resources to just be out here living my best life, but I'm going to, everything will come together, I'll figure it out. And I think giving them that gift at that age is really powerful just as they pick their first round of um, GCSEs. So yeah, that's kind of what we started. Um, We do that in a combination of ways. So we run a conference for International Women's Day and International Men's Day. And then in between currently we're doing um, 45 minute webinars called Rocking Your Roll," And we're having different people from different sectors speak about their experience of, jobs they're doing how they've landed where they are and the skills they needed so effectively always going back to what she did you pick did you do a levels did you go to university or did you do an apprenticeship or did you just get a job and work your way up have you ended up where you are so they can really hear those varying stories
0: and if people want to listen to the podcast want to find out more about rocking your teens where should they go to jeffrey
1: um, they should go to www.rockingyour.ur dot com, and um, we'll have all of our information on there, all of our programs that we're getting up to, and then we'll run all social media platforms.
0: And talking to you, um, you you certainly seem Happy, and I know that you've taken work all happiness tests. Tell me how you scored.
1: So uh, overall, I got 83% on my happiness score, and I guess the, the, the joke that I, when I was looking at it, I was laughing because in my industry, which I, I guess is retail, uh, Globally, 70% of people said they, they were happy and sixty seven percent in in the industry overall. And then
0: I'm kind of above
1: that, 83%.
0: And w- why do you think you are so much happier than the industry that you work in? I think, you know, I'm, I'm
1: doing a new job. I'm creating a new team. I'm For me personally, I'm learning a lot of new things. In, you know, again, a new industry. And, you know, one of my things I enjoy most is learning new things. Like, I, I don't like to be stagnant. So I I feel that's probably why I'm so happy. I'm doing a lot of different things right now, that some are outside of my wheelhouse and some sit squarely within it, but it's a nice combination of both.
0: And taking the test, did you learn anything about yourself? Um, Well, I learned that
1: I was happy (laughs) because I wasn't sure. I was a little bit like, what's this going to tell me that? I don't know. Um, I think also what was interesting was that I saw that my, I needed to probably to do a little bit more work on my well-being um, because I guess it was asking about my setup at work and my setup at home difference and I think you know, there probably is some work that I need to do there around my home space and getting that a bit more
0: and did it make you reflect on the way that you manage other people um, it
1: didn't but I think that's because my management style is pretty um, you know we're all adults here we're all paid to do a job go out and do it you let me know if you're at a, an amber light or a red light Or well, let me know you're at an amber light before you get to a red light that I can step in and support you um, so yeah, my management style has always kind of been like that. And I think that also comes down to the fact that I started managing people so young. So having to manage people older than me, you've got to learn how to do that in a way that doesn't feel like you're telling them, well, this is what you have to do. You have to kind of let them feel like they have autonomy.
0: And, and tell me, I know you're you're newish in this job, but, but what does the, the future look like for you? What do you want to try and achieve over the next few years? Um, In terms of my role here at Martins, I am
1: looking at how I
0: diversify some of
1: the workforce in the sense of representation but giving ourselves the clarity around what we can and can't do. Um, I think there's a piece of how we authentically speak to our external audience as well on the subject of diversity and inclusion and bringing that story together to kind of champion our position um, in the marketplace on, on this subject and I think also for me it's kind of giving everyone in the organization the like grounding and understanding of the difference between diversity and inclusion from a work standpoint versus social justice, um, and how the two sometimes meet, but quite often don't, because you are working in a for-profit organisation. So the work that I'm doing is also to support the for-profit model, um, and yeah, kind of bringing that to the forefront a bit.
0: And tell me, is there anybody that you can think of that you would like to do the work or happiness test? I was thinking about it
1: actually when I did it um, yesterday. I was thinking about my team here at Dr. Martins as well to see whether they, what they would get from it in the sense of the insights at the moment. So yeah, so there's lots of people I think that could get a lot from it. Because I think, especially the way that you guys break it down. So you're not only just looking at whether, you know, I got 83%, I'm happy at all. But then there there were other sections where I needed, I need to do some work. I need to do some reflection on how I, you know, bring the number up or leave it where it is, but understand why it's there. So yeah.
0: And if you'd have taken the test when you were in that recruitment job you hated, <laughs> what, would you, what would you have said, Jeffrey?
1: I think it would have said 0%. You are unhappy and you need to get out of that ASAP. Um, I, I, you know, I think of all the jobs I had, that, was, that, is, that is by most of the worst. And I think, but the funny thing it taught me the most because it taught me why, how I value myself.
0: A last question for you, and this seems so appropriate given your music background, but is there one piece of music when you hear it that makes you feel happy?
1: One piece, oh, that's such a hard question. Um, so it's basically by Natalie Cole, Matt Pink Cole's daughter, it's called This Will Be. And yeah, that every time I hear that song, it's like 2.59 minutes of joy, love
0: it. You've had the most amazing career, the most diverse career. And it's great that you've now found your happiness in doing what you do and also in setting up your brilliant charity. Thank you for sparing the time and we wish you every success and happiness in the future. Thank you so much, not a problem. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work.